today on episode number 163 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast. Stacy Jacob talks about her experience incorporating games in her classes. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Thanks for joining me on this episode number 163 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast. Today's guest, Stacy Jacob, got in touch with me about the conversation we had previously about gaming in the higher ed classroom. And I was so engaged by what she had to talk about of what she's doing that I invited her to be on the show. And she said, yes, Stacy Jacob is an assistant professor of student affairs in higher education and the graduate coordinator for the Department of Counseling and Development at Slippery Rock University of Pennsylvania. She currently teaches graduate classes in organizational behavior and leadership, research and assessment, and about higher education environments, cultures, and students. Before Stacy became a faculty member, she served in several functional areas of student affairs. Although her career path has taken many twists and turns, she has always considered herself a teacher and developer of human potential. Stacy holds a BA from Austin College in Communication Arts, an MA from the University of New Orleans in Educational Administration, and a PhD from Indiana University in Higher Education and Student Affairs. Stacy is a creative soul and an enthusiastic learner. Stacy, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Well, thank you. I know that I just, of course, paraphrased your bio, and you have such unique things that we could talk about professionally, but I wonder if you could share something that doesn't come out in your bio that you've been working on lately. Well, um, my husband and I, four years ago, moved into, it's over a 150-year-old row house in the city of Pittsburgh, and although it was previously, apparently this house was vacant at one time and it was sitting kind of on the sidewalk instead of the foundation and our neighborhood association kind of built it up, but it had a lot of like old 80s things. And so we're trying to put some of it back to its former glory in places that we can find to kind of honor some of the old stuff of the house. And then just kind of um, remodeling in general. So we've been going up this house for a while. And so that's one of the things that I really in, enjoy doing is taking on the project of this this great old house. <laughs> when we were emailing back and forth, I admitted to you that I didn't know what a row house was. And you said from the 1870s, some, somewhere in there, and then you sent some pictures, which we will be linking to in the show notes. But just for people that are listening, because a lot of people listen in their cars or walking around lakes or walking their dogs. So for people who are listening, can you describe what a row house looks like? 
Yeah, they're they're tall and skinny, and so we have a four-story house with our basement, so basement, first, second, third floor, um, and they're all stuck together, little skinny houses that are all stuck together in a row. Um, uh, people, you know, they were probably the predecessors to, say, townhomes or, you know, condo kinds of things, and um, and they often have little dormer windows and things like that, and, and so that's what a row house is, and they're, and they're in older cities. Um, Boston and New York City and Pittsburgh is a very old city as well. In what ways does your experience working on the row house kind of line up with your experience in teaching? Oh, yeah. Well, um, so one of the things about, about remodeling a very old house is you really have to be willing to fail. <laughs> and so, like, you uh, Two summers ago, we remodeled our kitchen. I thought, oh, we'll do this really quick. I'm just going to pull up this floor, and it'll be great. And there were five layers of floor under there. And so it actually took me almost two months of everyday working to actually pull out the floor. And then there were hundreds and hundreds of of screws in the subfloor. And it just felt like I was failing. Like at one point, I'm like, why did I root out my kitchen? It was workable. Why did it have to be beautiful? And so, and you're always finding that like in an old house, angles don't match, things are not level. So you're always having to find workarounds when um, something doesn't work the way you think it is. And you have, and I think that's true about teaching. You have to be a lifelong learner to do this because I have learned more things than I ever thought I would learn um, remodeling this old house. So I now know how to tile and drywall and all kinds of things that I, I didn't know how to do before. And then like, you have to have a belief that things can transform and be better. And I think that houses can transform, people can transform, that all relates to teaching. And then I think my final thing is that I am I am a lover. I don't know who told me about this, but the spaghetti theory of life. And like, you know, when you to find out if spaghetti is done, you throw it against the wall and see if it sticks and it's done. So I I like trying new things and just seeing what works and that's exciting to me. And I think that works really well in old houses and in teaching. So that's how I think it relates to teaching. I have been thinking a lot and it's been actually coming up a little bit on Twitter. I've been going back and forth with James Lang, who's been on the show many times mm-hmm. and just this idea of experimentation and trying things and then they don't work. And, and it's, I would say it's relatively easy for me to do that in my teaching. And I do put the emphasis on the word relatively because I still feel the fear and I still feel the failure. I mean, it still it still affects me emotionally in terms of when things don't go the way that I wish they would have. But I'm willing to take those risks. But one of the things when you're talking about working on a row house, I was thinking as you were sharing, I haven't ever drywalled and I haven't done those things that you described of working on a house. And so many people out there in higher ed have really been inspiring me that we've got to put ourselves more often in positions where we really do feel terribly uncomfortable and where we really aren't good at whatever it is. And I realize I don't do that enough. I mean, I do it in my teaching, but I also know I'm good at teaching. And I I certainly don't say that egotistically. I say it actually to criticize myself because that doesn't count. When I do it in teaching, it doesn't count because I have confidence that I am a good teacher and that I can have an effect 
on the students that I'm, I'm attempting to have positive effects on, but I don't in other areas and I don't put myself out there enough. So you've really inspired me with that. I feel like I should, you know, go out and start drywalling something in our house, but, <laughs> or maybe pick something else. I don't talk to my husband first. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and it's really funny that you said that because it relates, you know, you asked me to think of some recommendations, but I'm going to share one right now. But one of my recommendations is to learn something new every year. Yeah. Because here's the thing about learning. It's really hard. And I think as a teacher, you need to be connected to the hardness of learning. You know, I don't think hardness is hardness a word, I guess, in geology. but I don't think it's a word. (laughs) I totally think it's a word. Because you talk about the hardness of different minerals and rocks. But, you know, you need to be connected to how hard it is to learn. And when you take up learning yourself and learn something that's out of your comfort zone, and for me, those tend to be physical things. Like, I'm really uncoordinated. And, you know, so, like, my husband and I took some swing dancing lessons a couple of summers ago. And that was really good because that was very hard for me. And it gives me a space to, like, respect and honor the work that my students are doing in the classroom. So so I think it is good to learn something new. Yeah, it's so important. Well, let's get to the topic of the day that I'm so excited to talk to you about. We're talking about using games in the classroom. And I'm wondering how you first started getting interested in doing this. Yeah, well, it was my husband was watching some YouTube videos and he saw Jesse Shell, who is a game maker. And ironically, we, we lived in we lived in we lived in Texas at the time, but this guy's in Pittsburgh, and we now live in Pittsburgh. Um, he was a professor at CMU, and he was talking about how games have invaded real life. And he talked about Weight Watchers, how it's gamified, and gave all these examples of different things like that, and Facebook and Back when he did this, he was talking about Farmville and those games on there. And then he talked about a professor, Lee Sheldon, who had who teaches how to he teaches game design to to make like video games and things like that, and how he had gamified this class of his, and he had made the class a game with games within it. And my husband saw this video and sent me this link and said, "You're creative. I think you should do this." Mm. <laughs> and I was like, huh. That's really interesting. And here's the funny thing about this. Like when you talk about a lot of people, talk with a lot of people who are playing with gamification, they're actually gamers and I'm not. I wasn't. I am now, but I wasn't at the time. And so I just, I just thought it was fascinating because I started my teaching career at a student academic center working with people who were failing out of college. And for me, motivation is the most important part of learning. And I thought about, well, when you play a game, how it's fun and, and motivating. And I thought, wow, that'd be really interesting. And I also am a person who loves to have fun. Like, you know, there are people who are serious about having fun. And when I talk about this, I say, I'm really fun about serious things or or fun about seriousness, you know? Mm -hmm. And so the things that I teach are serious, but to, to give it to students in a fun way, in a way that creates motivation was really exciting to me. And so I just started talking to gamers and said, this is what I want to do. This is a class I want to do with it, do this with. And my first class was a, was a history of higher ed class. And that worked out really well because, you know, you can, you can kind of put people in the mindset of back in time through history. Mm-hmm. Right. And then when I, 
moved from my last university to Slippery Rock, I decided to do it with an organizational theory class after teaching it for a year because one of the things that I realized I'm teaching young master's students about working in higher ed organizations, and I realized that they had very little experience in organizations. And so it's very hard for them to understand anything but bureaucracy. So when you talk about collegiums or politicalness in organizational behavior, it doesn't make sense to them. And so I thought, this is the perfect class to do this because I can put them back in a world where we can create those things and they can see what it is and connect what they're learning in class to an experience. It can sometimes be challenging to teach students who don't have a context yet to really understand things. And it can be wonderful then when you can create a context within a class. One of the games that I played both when I was a student and then also had my students play when I took on the role of teacher is called the power game. And it shows up sometimes in organizational behavior classes. But for anybody listening who might not be familiar with the power game, it's relatively simple. People put something some kind of stake into the game. Generally speaking, it might be $5 in cash that they sort of put into a pot in the beginning of the class. And then each student selects from slips of paper a role that they're going to play. And they are either top, middle, or bottom. And if I recall correctly, something like 10 to 20% of the people end up being tops, maybe 10%. And then 10 to 20% end up being the bottoms and then everybody else are the middles <laughs> and then they get physically mm-hmm. separated. Then there's some sort of rules that are start, start out at the beginning of the class. Like I don't remember exactly what it is, but the ultimate goal is that they have to decide what to do with the money right. and yeah. <laughs> human nature ensues. And so many times in this, I think I would fall into this category too, so I don't want to completely separate myself from this, but there's a tendency for us to want to say, oh, well, that was just a game. That wouldn't really right. happen in real life. If you really gave someone a title that made them super, super powerful, that wouldn't really change human dynamics and it wouldn't really change how that person attempted to influence other people. And you go, <laughs> hmm, well, isn't that, or like that okay. might happen to other people. But that would never happen to me. I'm above titles. I'm above having power affect me in any way. And so it's just sort of interesting when you can bring that real world context in. Can you talk a little bit about your transition in either developing games or using other people's games from more factually oriented ones? Like perhaps the history one might have been, you know, names and dates and theories, that kind of thing too organizational theory, which is, I would imagine, a lot more complex and, and a more sophisticated game design. Is that a fair, a, a, a fair yeah. guess? Yes. Yes. And what I've learned in doing this is that, you know, so the first night of class, I always start with games. It, you know, like I, I kind of talk to the students about what games do you like to play? And we talk about them. And I realized in that that our students had had only played, most of my students had only played certain kinds of games, like video games sometimes, like party games, like charades or categories or things like that, or like sports games, right? What they hadn't played are things like cooperative games and role-playing games. Mm -hmm. And to create those more in-depth things, you have to be able to think through how do I create a world that you can get immersed in a little bit for a little while. And so the first night of my class, 
So when I realized this, I just went to my local game shop and I said, here are the kinds of games I need and I have about an hour. What, what can I buy? And, 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 and my local game shop here in Pittsburgh, the fellow gave me some great ideas. And so I then, before the first night of class, sent them out. Um, Will Whedon, who is an actor, but also a gamer, does these tabletop sessions where he and his friends record playing these games because they're really complex and have lots of rules. And so you could spend an hour learning the rules. So I sign the students before the first day of class. I sign them to a game and then send them the video of that tabletop game so they see what the rules are and how it's played. And then the first night of class, we play that. And then after that, we talk about what they learned from playing that. And then we relate that to how, how is higher education like a game in some ways? And we talk about that. And so that's how I get them into that depth of these are the kinds of games because I ultimately have them for each of the major kinds of theories that we look at in org theory. I actually have groups of students create a game that then they present. We talk about the chapter, they create the game, we play the game, and then we debrief after that. So most, I, I model one on the first, on the first, not the first night, but the next night we read about garbage can theory, decision-making in higher ed. And I have little garbage cans that have dice in them and, and rules and rolls. And so they, they play a, like a, a game you can buy that's kind of, you know, some of these cooperative games people have never played, like um, Pandemic or Forbidden Island or a couple of examples of that. Um, and then we play one of my games, and then they in groups make games and they have to consult with me. So I make an appointment where the group comes with me and they tell me what they're going to do. And I start to point out what the issues are with that and how they can improve that game. And so that becomes part of their grade in the class is this game that they created for each other's learning. Um, so that's the way I sort of handle getting, because I couldn't imagine at the start of this, I was like, how am I ever going to make up like 10 to 12 games in a semester? <laughs> I'm creative, but not that creative. <laughs> so, that's how I got to, well, the students can be making these games for their own learning. They're, they're smart, they know, you know, and they, they've made wonderful games that I, you know, done things that I've never thought of before. And, you know, I, one of the things I do do when they make those games is I have, um, I, I, I kind of pull the students the first day and I say, who, is, who has played these kinds of games? And so when I get, and usually I'll have four or five people who've done role-playing games. And so I purposely put one of each of those in the group because they understand these like mm. really intense sort of like lots of rules and instructions kinds of games. I'm about 80% through with Stephen Brookfield's book on becoming a critically reflective teacher. And one of the many things, I mean, my gosh, my highlights, I pretty much highlight every page. So it's, when I when I go to review my highlights, it's just going to be the entire book and highlights. But one of the many themes that's come out to me is that I think that I both had this misnomer about teaching, and probably still hold on to the myth sometimes when I'm at my weaker points. And that is that when we get resistance from students, it's, it's, by very nature, a bad thing. And by very nature, I've done something wrong. I know that that isn't true. 
but my mind still wants to believe that it is true in my weaker, darker moments. And so yeah. one of the things that I, I'm almost positive, I mean, I just, I'm, I'm willing to put that, that money that we talked about from the power game down on the, uh-huh. I'm willing to gamble on this, even though I'm not a gambler, but I'm willing to do it to say, you have to regularly encounter resistance doing this. You just have to. So am I right or am I wrong on this? Do I win the bet even oh. though you didn't take oh, it? I- I, I do owe you five dollars then. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> absolutely. And part of it because I sent you a syllabus and you looked through it. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm guessing. And I, I'm sure that your mind was like, what the heck? <laughs> so how do you, you know, handle it then? Because you, you know, it's coming. And, and, or is is how you handle it different every time? Or are there any themes with approaches that you take? And is there anything you do for self-care to sort of protect yourself from how difficult that can be to sort of have other people want you to carry their baggage around with them? Yeah. So, okay. So I am really ready for it. And so before I even hand out the syllabus, I say, this class is going to look nothing like, you know, when you get the syllabus, you're going to be stressed out. I tell them what they're going to feel. You're going to feel anxious. You're going to go, how do I get an A in this class? How do I do this? How do I do this? How do I do that? And you're going to feel anxious. I'm going to ask you to just go with me on this and trust that I know where we're going and you're going to be okay. Now, the good thing about my position in, in, in where this class fits in, in my students' program is this is like the fourth class they've taken with me. So they already do trust me. I'm in a graduate program. So they kind of, you know, they already know me enough that they're like, okay. Now, now my very type A people do not like it. Mm-hmm. And so we, I just keep saying like, you'll get it. And, and one of the best things that I had last semester, I had a, had a student, Nick, who said, Stacy you know what you need? You need a quick start guide because looking at your 27 page syllabus kind of freaks you out. Mm-hmm. Could you make a one pager? And I thought, oh, Nick, brilliant. I, you know, I had never thought of doing that. And so that's something I'm working on this summer because I feel like kind of laying out like, because the whole syllabus is set up, up as a game, like you can level up different points in the class. Um, to get the grade that you want, kind of like a video game. There are opportunities, like in video games, what happens when you die? You just start the game over. So there are opportunities on major assignments for revision. You get to learn, you get to take what you learn like you do in a video game and start over. Because that is real learning to take your mistakes and kind of redo, you know. It's hard to do in a college classroom because it takes up a lot of time to of your time to regrade things. But so, you know, I, I do remind them that there is that revision in these things. Um, but I really thought that was a brilliant idea of his to say, how about a quick start guide so I can see how I earn my grade rather than weed through your, you know, 27 page syllabus. Yeah. Like, oh, pretty smart. Yeah. I have a couple things going on in my head, so I'm going to do my best not to get lost in my own train of thought, but we'll see how we do. <laughs> One thing I wanted to mention while you were talking, I just saw a tweet yesterday from John Stewart, uh, not the John Stewart oh, comedian, uh-huh. but the John Stewart in higher ed, who he's been on the show before. He's um, an expert in open educational resources. And why am I forgetting what institution he's from? I apologize, John, for this terrible oh, Oklahoma. Oklahoma? Yeah. Yeah. There we go. (laughs) Anyway, he had tweeted out about a learning management system from the University of Michigan that the entire learning management system is designed around gameful courses. 
And you're, you're mentioning yeah. leveling up reminded me of that because they have that. And then the freedom to fail, the tangible progress, the students can see where they are at any time, more autonomy, and then they can level up. They call it earning up, I think is how they do it. But I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes, just in case anybody else is sort of intrigued by where learning management systems might go in all of this. Because as you well know, they're not designed to do this at all well now. Right. You have to just really kind of trick things out. Yeah. Yeah. At one point I talked, there's, I think it was a professor that developed it there. Yes, and I, yes. and I don't remember his name because I talked to some of his graduate assistants. They found out that I was doing this through a chapter I did in Lee Sheldon's book about the multiplayer classroom. And they talked to a bunch of people from that book. And so I talked to them. And so I didn't know it was out yet. That's really exciting. But what one should know is that in most learning management systems, you can create badges. Mm-hmm. And you can create little electronic badges for your badging system. Um, mine are all on paper right now, but that's going to be something that I'm looking into. I just talked to our person at our university that I said, you know, are there badges? Yes, we've never had anyone use those. And so I'm, I'm, I'm messing with that this summer to see if I can take my paper and put it online. Oh, that's, that's fabulous. So one thing that we can do to learn how to play games or make games is to play games. And I'm curious, sure. though. I have played games and I have made a couple of games, but not many. I know that my imagination can be limited by my own lack of experience, especially because I haven't done a lot of the role-playing games like you're describing, but what, what can help bridge us, whether you're helping your students bridge this or whether you wanted to help faculty bridge our gaps to go from being a player of games to becoming a creator of games. Um, First, I, I think one you, you should you should play some role playing games and try them out, right? For sure. But like gamers are everywhere. Um, people who love these kinds of games find a gamer the gamer in your life and chat with them. Because the first class that I made this way, I had really not played that many. I played like one or two role playing games. I wasn't as experienced as I am now. But I had long conversations with the people in my life who were gamers, and said, you know, here's what I'm trying to do. What do I need to, you know, do to make this class a game? And the first piece of advice I got, um, and actually was from my brother-in-law, who has written many, many games. He used to run a, a weekly game for teenagers at his local library and wrote games, wrote playing games for them. So he's very experienced with this. He's like, you need a story. You need a good metaphor about what this is. And so, you know, I have a story in my syllabus right now. And that's going to change because that's one of the things that's not quite working for me right now about people observing Earth, these aliens observing Earth and, and seeing Earth and, and, and wanting to replicate systems of higher education and learn about how they work, how do colleges work, right? And so, um, you know, that was, that was a really good place to start. What's your story that you can weave through this whole class that you can kind of use to create your game around? And I, 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 so I think that's good. And then um, just lots of questions to gamers and playing some of these games, I think is a good start. And I will say that while I have not played it yet, um, the game that your former guest, Keegan Long Wheeler and John Stewart, that goblin game, mm-hmm. I've read through it and I think it's I mean, I think that would really help you kind of understand how to do this a little bit better. I am dying to do it with a bunch of people. I just haven't found anyone who wants to play it with me. <laughs> I'm sure I would learn from it. So 
that that's another recommendation I would have in, in terms of sort of thinking that through um, and where to start. Thanks for mentioning that resource. And you did provide me with a really long list of resources that I'll be putting in the show notes. And that's just very gracious of you to help people explore a little bit more. But that yeah, Keegan was back on episode 122. And we'll have a link to that. And then of course, Keegan's link has many <laughs> links about his own experience with gaming too. So it's just fun to have more conversations about this. In fact, I had you had talked about coming on the show just to get a little bit of a different glimpse, uh, t- entirely different discipline and how you're doing this in teaching leadership for higher ed. It's just really fun to talk to you. And before we go to the recommendations segment, I'm curious what have been some of the failures that you've made along the way and some big lessons that maybe we could take from you and maybe not have to make so badly ourselves. Yeah, you probably don't want to do this half-heartedly. Mm. <laughs> you know, like when I was transitioning from one university to the next, I decided to put an element in it. One of the elements in my class that I really, really love, and this is, uh, and this is the one thing I think you could do kind of outside of this. I do a bunch of stuff based on discussion. So I have all these different cards, and some of them are really funny cards. You know, like I have a giraffe card for when you stick your neck out in discussion or good point, or some of them are even related to theorists in our field. So one of the theorists in our field, um, George Koo, studies student engagement. So I have a being engaged card that has George Koo's face on it kind mm-hmm. of thing. And just silly things like that. You know. And I thought that, you know, and that works really well because you can start to show students how they're doing meaningful discussion by handing them their cards when you're in discussion phase of your class. Well, I thought that I could just kind of put that in and just use that to to motivate discussion. But because it wasn't related to any point, my first year here when I was transitioning, I thought, oh, I'll just just put this in because I don't have time to gamify the whole thing. Well, that didn't work really well because I hadn't provided – I didn't put any points that turned into a grade. And so they didn't really care about getting these cards at all. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, things like that, like – you need to develop it more holistically for it to work. One thing I think you could do that has been the the joy of this class is at the beginning of the class, I give each student three blank classmate cards. And they can have to use them before the end of the class or they get points taken off for each one. But at any time, like we do an awards at the end where I give a special award at the end of the day for something great that's been done, and then students give awards to each other. Um, like, you know, Larry, when you said blah, 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 that helped further my understanding of French and Raven's powers, you know, sources of power or something like that. And so that's the thing I think you could extract. That's the only thing. And and, and it is the most meaningful thing to see your students tell each other why what they said in class was helpful to their learning or what behavior they did in the project they're working on is is helpful for their learning. Or like last year, I remember students who, you know, was a very quiet student and, and she spoke kind of maybe for the first time in a year and a half, like really talked eloquently and students were like, wow, that was the greatest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> you know, like where, where were you hiding that person in discussion? <laughs> and gave her cards and, 
And so that's the thing because they're giving the cards to each other. Now I make those make points, their points towards their grade in my syllabus and stuff. But I think that's the part you can import. But the other things I don't think you can go halfway at because it was, it was a dismal failure when I tried it. Yeah. And the, and to really kind of think through what different variations might be and how it integrates back with the objectives for your class and your own teaching philosophy and all that. I do think that that's so important. When you were describing the leveling up, I was realizing I hadn't made the connection when we were corresponding previously, but I experimented a little bit with what I called choose your own. At first I called it choose your own adventure learning, but then I realized it was actually choose your own adventure assessment. What I was truly doing a better descriptor was choose your own adventure assessment. But it was kind of one of those things where it was a little bit, it was such a culture shock for them to get to have choice in how they were going to demonstrate their own learning, like their, their achievement of the learning outcomes. That was very something that they had not done before. And then all the variation, oh my gosh, like for, for every one of those, there's there's tons of variation. And so if you were teaching a larger class, it might not work, or you might have to to figure out in advance how you're going to accommodate different variables in, in that class. It's, but I, I hadn't made that connection though. That was, oh, I kind of did gamify perhaps did. my class a little bit, uh, but, but I chose yeah. a different descriptor probably for it, but yeah. I do have a little thing, and when you, because you know, part of my games class is that they get to choose assignments. And one of the ways that you can kind of fix that choose your own adventure thing is think of your, you know, what what are the outcomes that you want, right? What are you assessing? And then make sure that you have four or five assignments that do do the same thing but assess the same outcomes. Mm-hmm. And then it's not so crazy because you can build one rubric that fits all four or five assignments. Yeah. In, in my experience, I'm still struggling, with it, but I haven't given it up either because what, what the additional struggles that I get, even when I attempt to do that are so worth it for the motivation that comes. I mean, it's totally worth it. It's worth the extra troubles and work and, and trying to noodle it out. At any rate, this is yeah. the point in the show where we each give recommendations and I'm cracking up right now because I had no idea that mine would go so well with some of the things that you shared about on today's episode. Sometimes my recommendations are just kind of random and don't really fit, but this one sort of does. So this video is from a group called the Piano Guys, and my dad sent it to me, and that's always touching whenever my dad sends me music because we both are such lovers of music. And it is in the beginning, though, before they start playing their version of Can't Stop the Feeling they introduce a concept of how they're going to, inside of a store, ask people to dance like nobody's watching. So here they're going to explain it to you better than I will myself. So here's them explaining their dance like nobody's watching. We're so excited. We just got our first copy of Uncharted, our new album. So we're at a local store. We're going to be trying out our music on some people, see how they react. All right, we're going to test it out on this really nice boom box. And we leave this note that says, Press play and dance like nobody's watching. Capture their reactions. Let's do it. Come on. So we're seeing a woman in the grocery store and she opens up the note and it says, dance like nobody's watching. <laughs> One woman's like shaking her head. There's no way I'm doing that. <laughs> and some other people that they're filming take them up on their invitation and do start dancing in the middle of the grocery store like nobody's watching. And it's really, really just a fun video that gets a lot of people to sort of 
take off those risks of looking foolish in public and just really go for it. And it's just a great fun video to watch and just an inspiration. So this is Can't Stop the Feeling by the Piano Guys. It's a great YouTube video where they're <laughs> showing a lot of people dancing really well and really poorly <laughs> in a grocery store. So I suggest that people go check that out. And that's my recommendation for today. <laughs> I'll pass it over to you, Stacy. What do you have to recommend today? Well, that was fun. I like the music. One is back to my, I grew up in Texas, and so and I now live in Pittsburgh. And so I want to recommend, you know, summer is a time when you have a little more fun, to, time to do some fun things. And so I want to recommend the Homesick Texan Cookbooks by Lisa Fain. They're brilliant cookbooks, and every recipe I've tried in them are just wonderful, and they just take me back to my childhood. And I've just really been... Um, having a fun summer cooking out of, she has two of them. And so um, recommend that. And then if anyone's ever in Pittsburgh, I have, my husband and I recently went to the Carnegie Museum of Natural History. And I did not know this, but it has one of the biggest, I think it's the biggest dinosaur display in the U.S. And so it was a great dinosaur exhibit. And then they had a minerals and gem um, exhibit there. That, and both of those things are permanent. And they're just wonderful and amazing to look at both of those things. So there's a little Pittsburgh recommend. Oh, that's so fun. And I, at first I thought I misunderstood you when you said homesick because I thought, I think she said homesick. But she couldn't have possibly said homesick. And sure enough, she did. The homesick Texans yeah. family table, the homesick, all different kinds of cookbooks. I'll definitely be linking to that in the show notes. And Thanks for the Pittsburgh recommendation as well. My brother actually lives in Pittsburgh. I'm sure he'll appreciate getting to hear about it as well as anybody else that is in the area. Well, Stacy, thank you so much for coming on the show and also just for your correspondence with me. It's been a delight to get to know you a little bit and have you listening to the show and now contributing in this really big way to this episode. Thank you so much. Well, I appreciate it. And it was, it was super fun and I was super honored to be on this because you have some big name guest in the scholarship of teaching and learning field. And so this was really fun. And I hope I've inspired people to, to have a little fun in their classroom and do some interesting things the way that some of your other guests have inspired me to change some of my teaching. One of the things that Stacy didn't quite have a chance to mention I didn't want to miss. So I'm going to just say that a second recommendation from Stacy is a service called Super Better. And Super Better takes our habits and gamifies them and allows us on our smartphones to build in new habits, but do it through gamification principles. So check out Super Better. That'll be in the show notes at teachinginhighered.com slash 163. Thanks to Stacy for being on the show and for introducing all of these wonderful resources to us. If you want to receive the show notes from today's episode and every upcoming week's episode right in your inbox, along with an article about teaching or productivity, you can subscribe to the weekly update at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, whether that be a guest or a topic, feel free to provide those at teachinginhighered.com slash feedback. I'd love to connect with you on Twitter if we're not already connected there. I am at Bonnie, that's without an E, B-O-N-N-I, 208. I'd love to connect with you on Twitter. And if always you go to the web pages of any episode, you can connect with a guest on Twitter if they have a Twitter account, which Stacy does. And you can connect with me there too. So feel free to stop over there to make whatever social media connections you might want. Thanks for listening. And I'll look forward to seeing you next time. 